All right, well, if you want to op- grab your Bibles and open with me to 1 Samuel 27. We're continuing this morning in our study through the life of David. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter, but really and truly, mostly what we're going to be talking about this morning is just the first verse. Let me read. These are the very words of our God, found in 1 Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gizrites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments... And come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, Lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. We'll stop there. A confusing chapter to be sure. In chapter 27, David is living this life of kind of like a double agent, I guess. He's an undercover sleeper spy among the Philistines in some way. Or that's probably the most generous way to view what he's doing. Uh, He's kind of a mercenary here. He's a heartless murderer. Uh, He is killing people because they're witnesses to his crimes. Again, the Bible is not a story about good people. David is not a good man. The story of all of Christianity and all of our great heroes of the faith is that they are not good, but that they are following a God who is gracious and merciful to them. There is a lot in this chapter to make us squirm in our seats. And just at the very outset, we need to say that David is not our example. (laughs) David is a very real, raw portrait of a human being like you and I, who sometimes lives up to his values and other times horribly disappoints us. At times, he's a shining example. At other times, he's a cautionary tale. And in this chapter, David is a cautionary tale. 
There's something I want us to draw, draw our attention to in chapter 27, and that is the very first verse of the chapter. It says, I'll read it again. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. This verse sets up three chapters worth of an odyssey in David's life, which is just a complete misadventure. (laughs) It's going to go from bad to worse for David. And it's all queued up with this thinking that David has in his heart. But let's put this in the context of our own culture, our own day. Follow your heart is just about the most common piece of advice that we hear in our culture today from people who are advice givers. For example, Walt Disney, quote, let your heart guide you. It whispers, so listen closely. Tech giant Steve Jobs once told graduates at Stanford University, have the courage to follow your heart. One-time pop star Paula Abdul said, Break the rules, stand apart, ignore your head, follow your heart. Our culture is really just awash with this kind of advice. Everybody from Oprah to whoever is saying, Follow your heart. This is the greatest piece of advice our culture seems to offer young people who are coming up. And that makes sense, because the dominant worldview in America today is humanism. It was formerly Christianity, but today it is humanism. According to the American Humanist Association, humanism is defined as a, quote, progressive philosophy of life that without a belief in God or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. Humanism is the pursuit of good without God. And in fact, that is the motto of the American Humanist Association, good without God. Humanism posits that each individual is the arbiter of their own truth. Truth is personally derived and personally held. And this is really one of the most fundamental differences between, it, between what it looks like to hold a Christian worldview and a humanist worldview. Humanists say that you look within yourself to find truth and guidance. Look to your heart. Follow your heart. But Christians say that guidance, right and wrong, cannot be found within, but can only be found in a source external to ourselves, God in the Bible. So whereas the actress Jennifer Aniston was once quoted as saying, really try to follow what it is that you want to do and what your heart is telling you to do, a thoroughly humanist sentiment. Someone speaking from a Christian worldview would probably say something different like, really try to follow what it is that God wants you to do and what the Bible is telling you to do. Do you see the difference between those two statements? One is looking to a source external to ourselves to find truth and guidance. The humanist view says look within. So a Christian looks to God and his word as truth, and they view their inner world with some suspicion. 
But a humanist does the opposite. They look at external externalities with suspicion. Religion and the Bible and cultural institutions, but they view their inner world as truth, as a pure place, a place to operate from. And the reason why I point all this out is because our text for this morning, 1 Samuel 27, begins with words that Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, Paula Abdul, and Jennifer Aniston would approve of. (laughs) Then David said in his heart, And to most people in our culture, that might at first sound like kind of an innocent or maybe even an inspiring statement. David's following his heart. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? However, here is what the Bible says about our hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Our culture seems... To be teaching that how we feel should inform what we think, when in fact the opposite is true to our actual design. What we thinks affect what we think affects how we feel. This is patently obvious if you think about it. For example, how many of you have ever seen the horror film Jaws? Show of hands. Most of us. We're Americans. We've seen Jaws. You know the sound. Do 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 right? Okay. This is just a thought activity. You can be a thousand miles away from the ocean in a secure bunker, surrounded by armed guards, and your grandmother and golden retriever puppies. You can be in the safest, securest, most sunshiny place. But then you turn on the TV and you start watching Jaws. You know that opening scene where the girl swims out into the ocean at night? And we see from underneath the water her form silhouetted against the moonlit sky and she's swimming on top of the vast inky black containing whatever kind of monsters are down there. And then comes that sound. In that moment, your heart is gripped with fear. Why? You're in a bunker a thousand miles from the ocean with golden retriever puppies and your grandmother. It's okay. I'll tell you why you feel fear. Because you've put those thoughts, those images into your mind, and now they've settled down and found expression in your heart. Your heart follows your mind like a dog on a leash. It's true. Your heart is just following your mind's lead. And in that scenario, we don't have to ask which is true. Are your feelings shaping your thoughts? Or are your thoughts shaping how you feel in your heart? Well, it's the latter, obviously, even though it's just a movie. And your surroundings are safe and comfortable. Your heart follows those images you've put in your mind. Truth cannot be determined by feelings. God has so engineered us that our emotions respond to what we are thinking and holding to be true in our minds. And one of the greatest teachers of this truth in the Bible, ironically, is David. David himself in the Psalms often makes this argument. In fact, more times than we have time to demonstrate this morning. I had a great time in my study this week finding all the examples in the Psalms, and they are myriad. Here's a few examples. 
Speaking of evildoers who delight in wickedness and who abuse the poor, David says in Psalm 10, He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? Do you see the argument David is making in Psalm 10? He's saying the fool, the wicked man, has introduced into his mind certain lies that then find expression in a heart of wickedness. Psalm 36, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. These are David's own observations about the dangers of consulting a heart for guidance and confirmation that has not been filled with truth. Brothers and sisters, your heart is like a cup. And whether or not it's good to drink from it is purely dependent on what you've poured in. This is a true statement. If I had a cup up here and I offered it to you to drink, you would say, what is that? <laughs> right? You wouldn't just blindly take it and glug, 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 right? And that's true of your heart. What have you poured in? What you pour into your heart is what you can withdraw from it. In other Psalms, David also speaks of the heart, of hearts that have been filled with truth. In Psalm 28, for example, he says this, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Or Psalm 27, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. These are David's own words. In 1 Samuel 28, David commits the sin of not waiting for the Lord. In the church, we often talk about various sins, but not waiting is rarely mentioned. Nevertheless, it's a common one, both in the Bible and in our lives personally. And even when a believer grasps God's will correctly, and even when God's promises and plans are understood, the issue of God's timing remains a problem for us. Probably the worst enemy of all of our good resolves is time. I'm willing to bet all of us at one time or another have undertaken a project with great enthusiasm that later just kind of fizzled out. Almost all of us, I'm sure, can think of something we were once pursuing with energy, resolve, conviction, but things just kind of petered out over time. And can this happen in the Christian life too? David shows us that it can. In this fallen world, things tend to corrode over time. Iron rusts, wood rots, fires die down to coals. David has heard and understood God correctly. But over time, his confidence in God's plan to one day make, his king, make him king, and his belief that God will protect him until that day comes, weakens and corrodes under the assault of fear, doubt, disappointment, and time. God has confirmed these things repeatedly to David, and David, for his part, has understood and believed. But then, time happened. <laughs> Days turned into weeks, weeks, months, months, years. It's too much. He just kind of falters. 
And when we pay close attention to what David says to himself in his heart in verse 1, we see that he has filled his mind with error. And his heart has followed like a dog on a leash and will take him into a very dark place. Let's read again these words. This is what David says to himself in his heart. And I ask you, is it true? Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Is that true? Not according to what God has told him. In 1 Samuel 23, for example, Jonathan spoke truth to him. He said, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. This statement that David would die by the hand of Saul was in direct conflict with what God himself has promised and made explicitly clear to David. This is not a true statement. But this is what he is speaking to himself in his heart. He is filling his mind with the image of Jaws, as it were. (laughs) And his heart is quaking. And it's divorced from reality. God is the ultimate reality. God has spoken and made his position, his plan, his purposes, his promises plain to David. But then he began filling his mind with this false idea, and it is finding, filling his heart. Then he says, there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Is that true? No, it's not. That is not true. There's nothing better for me. This is the best I can hope for, is a life of a fugitive living among a people who are opposed to my own. He acts as though God has not made promises to him of something far better than the life of a fugitive among the enemies of God's people. Do you remember earlier in our study of the life of David, he took his parents to Moab, and he just kind of lingers there for way longer than he should have, long enough that God sent the prophet Gad to go find him and say, what are you doing over here? You belong back home in Judah. And Gad told him, depart and go into the land of Judah. That's where your calling is. That's where the good thing I have prepared for you is. And here David is just completely disregarding that lesson. He's saying there's nothing better for me. There's nothing of a continuing hope here on this side of the border. I'm going to go into the Philistines. And then the lie number three that he tells himself is I shall escape by doing this. And and I think to a certain extent, yes, he will. He will escape the immediacy of the threat of Saul, but he doesn't escape really anything. He's going to replace his fear of Saul with a fear of Achish. And he's going to, because of his fear of Achish, he's going to enter into a double life where he's murdering innocents to prop up this narrative that he says, "I'm, I'm raiding my own people. He becomes a con man and a swindler and a murderer, frankly, He doesn't escape anything. He's out of the fire. He's out of the pan and into the fire. And really, arguably, his position now is far worse. 1 Samuel 27 marks the beginning of a very confusing period of David's life. And in it, David will learn that there are no geographic solutions to problems that you carry around with you. (laughs) There just aren't. David's problem is David. And he can't outrun himself by going among the Philistines. It's not at all uncommon for people to leave jobs or schools or churches or relationships because things went bad. 
But when they try to start over in a new setting or with new people, they find that the same problems they experienced in the old context crop up in the new. And that's because the problem all along was not the venue. It wasn't the context. It's them. The problem here is David's lack of faith in what God has said and made plain. No matter how far you go or how fast you run, you cannot put distance between you and yourself. This is a lesson that David is going to have to learn the hard way among the Philistines. And it's going to get dark before it begins to get better. In chapter 28 and 29, things will grow progressively worse and worse for David until he comes to his senses and returns to his calling among God's people. But even here in chapter 27, we find David beginning a very dark period of his life. We've already described that. But here's the thing. (laughs) David's problems don't go away because he's the problem. One of the ways that we have approached the story of David throughout this sermon series is the realization that this long span of chapters, when Saul is king but David is supposed to be, in many important ways it mirrors the days in which we are living, the church age. When Jesus is king, but he is not yet recognized as king by most people. David's days that he's living in are very similar to the days we're living in as Jesus followers today. I'm convinced of that. And I found a lot of meaning in this story because of that realization. There is a ruler of this world, Satan, who sits on the throne to which Jesus is destined. And just like Saul, he is a cruel tyrant, described by Jesus in John 10 as as one who steals, kills, and destroys. And the story of David has been helpful to us in learning how to live for our king and honor him in the midst of these difficult, confusing days when another is sitting on the throne to which Jesus is destined. And sometimes, again, David teaches us through his shining example. And at other times, he teaches us through his missteps. And this is one of those times. And the lesson I think we should all walk away with from this scripture, having learned today, is the necessity, the absolute necessity of speaking truth to your hearts. You have to be regularly speaking truth to your hearts. I I like to uh, use the analogy, our hearts are like a garden. When Sarah and I lived down in Florida, we had a garden that was year-round. That's the beauty of living where we did. They had a winter garden and a summer garden. In the winter garden, we would grow uh, collard greens, things like that, onions. Here's the thing about having a garden in Florida. We went away once for a week, and when we came back, that place was a jungle. It was amazing. (laughs) I, I was working real hard to try and keep the rows clear. I'd go and chop it up, and we'd put leaves down to keep stuff from growing. We went away for a week. We came back. There were vines everywhere. It felt like if you stepped out in the backyard and you closed your eyes, you could hear stuff growing. It was amazing. But your hearts are much the same. Right now, I'm willing to bet, in your hearts are growing the weeds of error. It's just constant. The thing about gardening in Florida is you couldn't go out and hoe once and be like, I did that. You had to do it all the time if you wanted to keep a garden. 
You had to constantly go out and chop up the spaces between your plants, or stuff would just grow and take over. And it is true with your hearts. And I am shocked at sometimes how often I am lazy about the business of chopping down weeds in my own heart. Maybe you feel the same. I can't speak for you. I don't know your practices and your spiritual disciplines. But God's word is like a hoe. And when you, when you give it access to your heart and mind, it is like this chopping hoe that just goes right to the root of those weeds that are popping up in your heart all the time. How different would chapters 27 through 29 have gone if the opening words of chapter 27 were not, then David said in his heart, but rather, then David spoke to his heart all that God had done for him. Or, then David spoke to his heart all that God had promised him. Or, then David spoke to his heart all the times God had protected and provided for him in the past. How different would that period of David's life have been if that's how that chapter started? How different would your life be if today, instead of saying to yourself in your heart whatever untruths you have filled your heart with, you were speaking God's word to your heart and letting that shape what you believe to be true? How different would my life be if that was my practice today? Or am I today operating from a heart that I have filled with error? This is a big issue in our society today. Back in 2013, right around, the, there was a 12-year study from 2000 to 2012. It was actually out of Harvard. Harvard did a study, uh, the, the goal of which was to show the impact that regular pornography viewing had on attitudes towards same-sex marriage. They had identified that males within our society were more resistant to the idea and what they found over a 12-year study is that males who regularly viewed pornography, their views changed on sexuality. Do you see what happened to their hearts? They filled their minds with error that then settled down and found expression in a heart that accepted sin as a good thing. I remember years ago, I got an email from a, f a friend of mine who had moved in with her boyfriend. And she knew that I was uh, a Christian, somebody who believed in the Bible, had sexual mores that I wouldn't view that favorably. So she sent me an email to broach the subject, and in it she said, it felt right. Now, I, I tell you, how does that feel right if you're filling your mind with truth? The mind is like a garden, and as these weeds grow, and take over, they find expression in a heart that has moved. The Bible is full of encouragements for us to speak truth to our hearts. Psalm 42 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. You see the importance of speaking truth to our hearts in that passage? Or what about Philippians 4? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, 
Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Thinking about those things results in peace. Romans 8 is a very interesting chapter in the Bible, but in it, Paul does this very interesting thing where he raises questions and then settles them back down in like machine gun fire. Just like boom, 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 boom. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemned? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he does there is so interesting. He says, he basically asks these questions and then answers them with God's word, and they're questions that are common concerns to us, aren't they? What if, what if, what if I can be cut off from Jesus? Nothing shall separate you. He quotes the Bible there. All these questions just in rattle, he just rattles them off, things that shake our hearts. He answers by speaking truth back to his heart. Emotions follow thought, and so the battleground for our emotions begins in the mind. Romans 12, 2 puts it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that my testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And I want to conclude this morning's service by telling you some common verses that I use to speak truth to myself. This isn't about me, but just in practice I have found some verses helpful time and time again, so helpful I've written them in the front, uh, what's the word, cover of my Bible, written them down in there. So I have regular access to them. The first one is this. Isaiah 41.10. And I, I think, I wish David could have said this to himself. Because his problem really is fear. And Isaiah 41.10 says this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Guys, you don't know how many times I have prayed that verse back to God sitting in that pew before I'm supposed to come up here. (laughs) God, I just need your help this morning. Big time. And God has said, fear not. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I'm your God. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's many times where you have something to go do, some context to stay within, some difficulty And it is so key to be able to speak this verse to your heart in those times. Because the alternative is, you're going to say things in your heart like David said to himself. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 9.8. These are great verses, by the way, to commit to memory. I don't know if you guys are memorizers or not. 
I find a lot of value in memorizing God's word. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God has called you to something and it's difficult. You're not sure you have what it takes to get it done. And so you can speak back to God. God, you're the God who says you won't call us to something and then not give us what we need to do it. You can, because the temptation is to say, man, I'm not up to snuff. I can't get that done. I'm not the right one to go talk to them or blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden we're saying things to ourselves in our heart that aren't true. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, speak that to your heart. Or this one, Philippians 4, 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Believe it. He is a great supplier God. Our hearts may be tempted to doubt his abilities as a shepherd, but when you speak back to God, the truth about God in Philippians 4.19, your heart is brought to a place of peace and rest. Or Psalm 103, how many of you have ever just blown it? And you say to yourself in your heart, there is nothing better for me. <laughs> I've blown it. God doesn't want me anymore. Well, let Psalm 103 settle down into your hearts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Wow. What a powerful thing to speak to your heart. Or 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So important to speak truth to your hearts. And David shows us the perils of not doing this. I, I have, uh, you know, as a Christian, I think, I have lived among Christians basically my whole life. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. Brothers are pastors. I'm just a Christian product through and through, for better or for worse. But over the years that I have lived as a Christian, I have heard so many believers say that it's, it's and it's true, by the way, that it's just hard to find time to read the Bible. I've heard it so many times, and I don't disbelieve it. You see, it's not untrue. I think very often when I've heard somebody say, or, or I've heard so many pastors, youth pastors, camp counselors say it's all about priorities. If you, if you had your priorities right, you, you would spend time in God's Word. And for whatever reason, the priorities lecture just doesn't get it done. I don't know why. But let me try a different tack this morning. If you're somebody who struggles to get into God's word because you're too stinking busy, or maybe you're just not naturally a reader, you open the Bible and you struggle along and your mind wanders and you have to go back and read the paragraph again, you've never been a reader. All down through school, it's hard. I think we need to learn to speak the language of worship. 
For example, if you go back to the Bible, do you remember the scene in the treasury when Jesus is there and a wealthy man comes and dumps a bunch of money in and then is followed by a widow with her two mites? And Jesus said, she gave less, but in my economy of value, she gave more. Because she gave, he, he gave out of his abundance and still has plenty left over. She gave everything. Let me put this in front of you. If you're somebody who struggles to find time to read the Bible, have you ever considered you have a more precious offering to bring God than somebody who has vast amounts of time? How blessed would God's heart be that even though you just had two mites of time, you spent that time with him in his word? You see, Americans today, we're the wealthiest society on the planet, ever. But in exchange, we have time poverty. We're busy people. Dawn to dusk, no margin. We work hard. We don't take vacations. <laughs> we don't read our Bibles. There's time poverty. But have you ever thought that in the midst of your time poverty, the two mites of time that you give God would, might be counted as God as more than somebody who gave vast amounts out of their abundance. Or, you might be that person I was talking about who struggles with reading. It's just a design issue. You hate reading. Well, forget for a second that today technology allows you to listen to the Bible. You can get in your car and on the drive to work, you can, you can conquer whole chapters of the Bible in a quick drive. But forget that for a second. Remember Zacchaeus? The wee little man, a wee little man was he. <laughs> he wanted to get a good look at Jesus, but he had to overcome the limits of his design to do it. He had to climb a tree. It was harder for him to see Jesus than a tall man. But what a precious offering to bring, that he worked harder at it. That's the stuff of worship. And so you might be somebody who has trouble reading. And I won't say priorities, priorities, priorities. I would just say, wow, what a precious offering. That even though it's hard for you, you do it. How pleased is God with that? Far more than somebody who just loves reading, who gobbles up every paragraph. That's what they do for a hobby. How far more precious that you struggle with reading, but you express to God so excellent are you, so, so full of worth to me that I do this. I want to get a good look at Jesus, and the only way to do it is to climb the finite limits of my own design. I've got to climb above. Whatever you have to do, I plead with you to get into God's Word. We will not go far as a fellowship of believers if we are not being shaped by that Word. And in fact, the weeds of error that we speak to ourselves in our hearts will grow and lead us into disastrous places as a people and you personally if we do not make this a practice, a spiritual discipline. Because the great enemy of all of our good resolves and convictions and understanding is time. Paul in his uh, prayer for the church in Colossus in Colossians 1 9 through 14 he offers this beautiful prayer and as part of that prayer he prays I pray that God would strengthen you with all power according to his glorious might that you might have great endurance and patience 
This Christian life is something to endure in. It requires patience and waiting. It requires holding on to convictions over time. And David in our text for this morning shows us that even a man of his faith, even a man of his concrete, clear understanding of God's will and purposes, over time, under the relentless barrage of error, faltered, stumbled, spoke untruth to himself in his heart, and strayed into a very dark place. And for the sake of your homes, for the sake of your marriages, for the sake of our mission together as a church, speak truth to your hearts through the Bible. Resolve to do it this week. Get alone with them. Even if you just have two mites of time, do it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you, Lord, for your grace towards us, your mercy. Father, we thank you that you remember that we are made of dust. I thank you, Lord, as we will see when we return to this story, that even though David strayed, you did not let him wander off to his own destruction. That when David spoke error in his heart, you did not let go of him. He's going to have to go through some tough stuff before he comes back. But Father, you are such a God who remains faithful to us even when we are faithless. And even though David has filled his heart and his mind with untruth, Father, you will pursue him with the truth of your promises and your plans, your good purposes. And Father, today, this morning, we are naked before you. You see our hearts. They are wide open. You see the tangle of weeds that's in there. And Father, I pray that perhaps this morning was a moment of clarity where you cut through the fog and you warned us about that. That we are perhaps drifting into a, a dark place because we've been speaking things to ourselves in our heart that are not true. Father, as we meet you in the midst of your word this week, as we open the Bible, Father, I pray that you would begin applying the hoe of your truth to the base of those weeds. Help us, Lord, to remain steadfast and disciplined in pursuit of you, giving your word access to our hearts. We may not have much time, and we may struggle to be readers, but Father, I pray that you would uh, receive our efforts this week as an expression of our worship, that you're worth it to us. And Father, meet us powerfully in that time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.